Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time in the palindromic episode 44, we're going to talk about cooking with electricity. We'll also talk about LED lights and why you should or shouldn't replace your regular lights with them. A story about a tow truck that is not all that great. A little bit of discussion about inflatable boats and a great place to visit that's open 24 hours a day in Maine. Thank you. I'm thrilled to talk with you once again. So I haven't really talked about cooking with electricity very much, with the exception of cooking with 12 volts. And I am kind of keeping that separate. I, I know I've talked a lot about all different kinds of 12 volt things, and I know I have said many times that I really don't like inverters because using an inverter to convert your 12 volt power to household current is inherently inefficient. You're wasting at least 10% of your power when you do that. But so many people are doing it and battery prices have come down so much that, hey, we should at least talk about it because there are some conveniences if you have an inverter. And one of those is cooking. Now, why would you want to cook with electricity? I mean, I'm a big fan of those butane stoves, like the Gas One butane stove. They're 20 bucks. They cook great. It's just like cooking in a range at home. The gas lasts a long time. It's fairly inexpensive if you buy it in bulk from Amazon. And you can move the thing. You can take it outside. You can use it in the van. I love them. Why would I ever want to cook with electric? Well, the nice thing about cooking with electric is that you are cooking with a renewable resource in that you can't run out of electric for very long. I mean, you can run out of battery power, sure, but you should have a way to replenish that. So let's start with the basic reality here. Cooking with electricity uses a lot of power. So you have to take into account that you're going to do something that's going to use a lot of power and just prepare for it. You don't have to freak out about it. How much power are we talking about here? Well, if you have a 100-watt solar panel or a different way of charging your batteries, such as you're going to drive for five or six hours every day, or you have shore power, in which case you don't really care, and you have about 100 amp hours of battery or AGM battery, if you had lithium, you would only need 50. We don't want to get into that in this episode too much, but let's say 100 amp hours of AGM battery, the quote-unquote normal cheap kind of battery that is used in vans you do actually have enough to cook with electricity. But here's the thing. You want to cook with electricity as close to noon as possible if you're using a solar setup. Because most of the vans I've seen, and certainly in my van, the sun comes up in the morning and starts charging batteries immediately. And by noon, the batteries are pretty much topped off because during the day, I'm not actually using a lot of power. Heck, I might not even be in the van. I'm out doing some adventure. Or if I am in the van, I'm kind of just chilling out. I'm not really doing that much. I don't have the lights on. Uh, the fridge is running. There is that. But your solar panel never stops producing power. Just because your batteries are topped up doesn't mean the panels like kind of call it a day. Your charge controller may modulate the power and change to a trickle charge rather than a bulk charge. But there's still power there, and you can use that power to cook. And that's what's great about solar power. Just because you only have 100 amp hours of battery doesn't mean you don't have more power. Solar can charge up your batteries, and then if you use something with your batteries fully charged, you're going to actually only be using solar in many cases. 
But the reason you want to do it at noon is twofold. One, you're going to have the most solar output. But the other reason is that it gives you time to charge your batteries back up if you need them to. So if you did actually run down your batteries while you were cooking, you would need extra time during the day to charge your batteries up because when you want your batteries to be topped up, at least this is my experience, is at night when you go to bed. That's when I really want my battery to be at its fullest because I'm going to be using fans all night long, I'm going to be using lights, and I'm going to have my fridge running all night long without the benefit of solar. So that said, you have to have a fairly robust system in order to cook with electricity. If you have a Jackery or a little Goal Zero or something like that, eh, you're probably going to have a hard time keeping your battery charged enough to be able to do any of the things I'm about to talk about. But you can always do the math. Every single electric device that is made and sold in the U.S. and Europe and probably just about anywhere tells you how much power it uses right on it. It will tell you in watts. Again, watts equals amps times volts. You can do the math and see how many amp hours it's going to be. The other thing to remember is that when you're cooking with electricity, it's usually a short-term thing. I mean, how long does it take to fry an egg? Okay, so maybe your device is using a whole lot of power, but it's for seven minutes or so. All that said, there's no reason not to be as efficient as possible. So let's talk about some very popular and good solutions for cooking in the van. Number one, microwaves. Yes, you can have a microwave in your van. Now, of all the things I have seen people install in their vans and later remove, microwaves are the number two thing that I've seen people remove. The number one thing is, of course, a thermoelectric cooler, and people are replacing them with 12-volt compressor fridges. But that aside microwaves because people just tend not to use them and, and it depends on you it depends on how you're going to cook but i've seen a lot of people take them out because they take up a lot of space that people might think is more important than the convenience of microwaving now you can get a regular old microwave and cook it in the van but you're going to want to get a lower power one if you can find like a 700 watt or even a 600 watt microwave that's going to be better and yes it's going to take longer to cook your food but it's not going to be such a big drain on your inverter and your inverter isn't going to have to be quite as beefy you can get a less expensive inverter to run your microwave or you can do what i think is a better option is to get a 12 volt microwave yes they exist and there's no loss of conversion with the 12 volt ones they're wired directly to your batteries with beefy cables and you can use them that they're very efficient and very not fancy they're a box that you put things in and the stuff gets hot that's it energy wise they're a better way to go than say any one of the off-the-shelf microwaves the way most of them work is that they only can do full power so if you set it at 50 percent power all it's doing is running for 30 seconds and then not running for 30 seconds and running for 30 seconds and then not running for 30 seconds or whatever the interval is. That's it. They just turn on or off and your adjusting of the power adjusts the frequency of that. There is a line of microwave ovens from Panasonic that are called inverter microwaves, not to get confused with the inverter that's in the van. Let's ignore the technical stuff here. Just know that this microwave is called an inverter microwave, and it is different in that it can actually adjust its power. So if you set it at 50%, it will run full-time at 50%, and that is better. So that's it, microwaves. Number two, induction cooktops. 
All right, so electric cooktop, everybody's seen one of these things. And the old-fashioned electric cooktops were these metal coils. And yes, you can use them in a van. That's the cheapest way to go. They're about 13 bucks for an electric cooktop. But they're, they've got a lot of disadvantages. They're not very efficient. They take a long time to heat up. They are hard to adjust. So if you're, like, burning your sauce and you want to turn it down, well, you kind of can't. I mean, you can turn it down, but it's going to take 30 seconds for the temperature to go down, and your sauce is going to keep burning. So what's better than those is what's called an induction cooktop. This is a flat panel that is easy to confuse with traditional flat cooktops that you'd find in a house, but it doesn't glow. That's how you can tell the difference. These do not glow. In fact, they do not get hot. You can turn this thing on full blast and stick your hand on it, and it won't even be hot. Because the way these things work is through induction. And there's a whole lot of physics involving magnetism and electricity here that I don't even pretend to understand. But I do know that what happens with this type of cooking device is that you take a pan that has steel or iron, called ferrous, metal in it, put it on there, and that will cause an electrical reaction where the pot will heat up. And that's what you want. But only the pot heats up. Once you take the pot off, this thing is cold. Well, or, all right, the pot may have heated it up, but it itself is not getting hot. It's just the pot that gets hot. Now, you do have to use special pots. If you have aluminum pots and pans, like you find in many camping cook kits, those aren't going to get hot at all. They're just going to sit there and do nothing. But your old cast iron pans, yeah, those are going to do great. Or any of the steel pans that you can get. You just have to be sure. And, and a, a quick test is if a magnet sticks to it, it'll work. Or if it's stainless steel, it will work. Now, one note with these. If you go with the inverter cooktop, absolutely have to be sure to get a pure sine wave inverter. If you get a square wave inverter or a modified square wave inverter, this thing will be very unhappy because it is directly attached to the way the electricity works. And they will buzz and make horrible noises and fail prematurely if you don't get a pure sign inverter. So make sure you know what that's about. I've talked about it in past episodes. And heck, write me at a, an email at jeff at builttogo.com if you have any questions about that. And I'll steer you in the right direction. And induction cooktops cost about 50 bucks, and that's for a portable one. So you can actually cook outside with this as long as you have an extension cord or some way to plug it in. They're actually smaller than the propane or butane cooktops and have all the advantages. They just use electricity. So I think that is a pretty versatile way to go. Now, there are some other things you can do, too. Like, a lot of people are big fans of the instant pots. Now, all an instant pot is, it's an electric pressure cooker. A lot of people think they're crock pots and they sort of work the same way, but what makes them special is that they're pressure cookers. Because of that, they use a whole lot of energy to start with and then they don't use very much because the pressure is keeping the heat in there and it's making it cook much faster. So it is actually a fairly efficient way to cook. In fact, you could even say start the thing while you were driving, hopefully you would have it secured properly, and get it heated up while the engine's running, and then when you turn the engine off, this thing's ready to go, and it's going to use very little power from there on in. So Instant Pots are a great idea, but they are a little bit bigger. You know, the, the problem with an Instant Pot is it's always the size of an Instant Pot, so you have to have a place to store it. I know in my van, I don't know where I would put an Instant Pot. And another option is, of course, as Forresty Forrest of YouTube fame, uh, he's actually famous for this, is 
He wanted to cook a specific dish, so he went to a thrift shop and spent $4 on a traditional old slow cooker crock pot. And he's ended up using it all the time. And this it was 4 bucks. It's just a plain old crock pot. And he has recipes, and he fills it up and bungees it down and plugs it in, and it just takes six hours or whatever to cook. Meanwhile, he's hiking the most beautiful mountains in the world. But it works for him. Now, he's got a lithium system. He's got a fairly beefy battery. So you would have to do the math and see if this would work for you. But sure, electric crock pots can work because they cook very slowly over a long time. That can work really well with a solar system, for example. But again, it's not something you want to start at 7 o'clock at night when your solar panels are not doing anything and you're just going to be sucking off your battery all that time. Now, a lot of people like air fryers. You can do that too. They do tend to use a bit more power, and they're also fairly big, so there's that option too. And then there's all sorts of electric griddles and frying pans, but I think the things that I've talked about before that are going to be better than just about any of those. And here's why. They're simply resistance heating devices. Uh, toaster ovens are like this, electric frying pans, electric hot dog makers, even electric kettles. They're all resistance devices. That means they use a whole lot of power, and they're just not as good. In fact, we should probably talk specially about heating water. Heating water is easy to do in ways other than using electricity, and it takes a lot of electricity to heat water up. So if you have a way to heat water, and I know a lot of people like the jet boils because while they're well-named, they heat water really fast. Let's say you had an induction cooktop and then a jet boil, you could boil water and cook whatever you were cooking on the thing at the same time. That would be a really good solution. So think about having a separate way to boil water because that might not be the most efficient use of your electric. And in my van, what I do is I have a 12-volt electric kettle that while I'm driving, I will tend to have it ready to go and I can just heat up water anytime I want. There you go. I am actually giving a little bit of love to the inverter lifestyle here. And in, in my van right now, I don't actually do any electric cooking, but I can see some advantages to it. And if I get a larger van in the future, I might just give it a try. Okay, tech talk. LED lights. So everybody loves LED lights. They're kind of a, a magical thing in that they give off a lot more light for a whole lot less energy, and they don't get hot. So they're pretty cool. In my NV200, up front, I have a number of map lights and a dome light. And then in the back of the van, there's also a dome light. And these, these came with the van. They're standard with the van. But they were all regular old incandescent light bulbs. So I replaced them all with LED, which didn't cost me very much. I got a big bundle of LED light bulbs that fit from, I think it was eBay actually, for like 10 bucks. And it was like, oh, 10 or 12 light bulbs. And so I replaced those and they work great. It's a much better quality of light and it uses very little power. Like if I accidentally left them on all night, I am not at all worried about them killing my battery. But they don't act the same as the regular light bulbs. In the NV200, those lights are supposed to dim gradually before they shut off. So the idea is you get in the car, and then that light will dim and then go out, which is easier on your eyes. The LED lights don't do that because they're not dimmable. Automotive LED lights typically are not dimmable. So in my van, they just shut off. And I'm okay with that. I've gotten used to it, but it is something to know. The other place you have to watch out for LED lights is if you're replacing the lights in your turn signals or your brake lights, because 
they will act differently, and that can kind of screw up things a little bit. Let me explain. Um, if you replace your brake lights with LED lights, they will turn on instantly. It's a different effect. You maybe have been behind a truck and seen this, that when they step on their brakes, the lights just, bam, they're on full blast. It looks different. It's okay. That's fine. Where it's not okay is if you replace a turn signal and especially if you replace only one turn signal. The reason is that car, van, truck turn signals have a sensor in them that detects resistance. And if that resistance changes, your turn signal will blink at twice the speed. And that's a notification to you that, hey, one of your turn signals is broken. So if you replaced one of your turn signals with an LED, there's a very good chance that that turn signal will blink twice as fast. In fact, both of them on that side of the car will blink twice as fast and it will look like you have a turn signal out. And maybe you don't care. Maybe having a turn signal blink twice as fast isn't going to bother you. I don't think it's illegal or anything like that. If one of them actually was out, you wouldn't know because it is always telling you that one is out. So just be aware of that. It's, it's not the hugest deal in the world, but LED lights do interact differently with your vehicle than regular lights. And in many cases, it's worth it because they are much more reliable, they last a lot longer, and they use a whole lot less power. Tales from the road. All right, this is kind of a weird story. Way back in the dark ages, when I was dating my first steady girlfriend, actually, we went out with a friend to go bowling because that's the kind of excitement we were into. My girlfriend and I were in the front seat, and my friend was in the back seat, and we saw a woman and a man on the side of the road, and this was in a city. This was actually in Malden, Massachusetts, and this was in a city kind of a landscape, and the woman threw her purse at this guy and started running away. Now, I may have been young, but I knew enough to know that when a woman throws her purse, something is very wrong. And instantly, without even thinking about it, I turned around and drove up and rolled down my window and said, hey, do you need help? And a little bit surprising to me, the woman got in the car. I didn't actually offer that. She just got in the car. Okay, let's go. So I took off down the street while the boyfriend or the presumptive boyfriend was screaming blue murder at me from the side of the road. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, dude, you're all done now. And then he threatened me. He said he was going to come after me. And I'm thinking to myself, eh, how's he going to come after me? I mean, I'm in a Toyota Tercel. It's not even my car. You're not going to be able to find me. This isn't like, this was pre-internet days. There wasn't, you know, I didn't have hashtag built to go on the back of the car or anything. So there was no chance he was going to find me. I asked the woman, I said, hey, do you want to want me to go to the police? Where do you want me to go? And she's like, no, 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 just get out of here. Get out of here. And I'm like, okay, because he's going to come after us. I'm like, well, he's not going to be able to find us. It's like, oh, oh, yes, he will. Yes, he will. And then she turned around and looked out the back window and said, there he is. And I'm like, what on earth is going on? Well, it turns out that the place where this woman threw her purse at the guy was just outside his tow truck. Yes, he was a tow truck driver. And they're always my favorite people. And me in uh, this little tiny Toyota Tercel with this super tiny engine with a top speed of maybe 80 miles an hour and 0 to 60 measured in minutes, not seconds, is suddenly in a car chase with a dude in an F-350 with an 8-liter diesel 
and he is coming for me. Now, the one thing I knew in this situation was that I had a better turning radius. So I am in downtown Malden, Massachusetts, basically doing loops around a median in the middle of the street, knowing that he will never be able to do it as fast as I can. And I kept doing it and doing it until I got more and more distance from him. And then when I had my moment, I took off and got enough distance from him that I knew I could make a turn and he wouldn't know where I went. And then my friend said, dude, you might as well just stop now. She's going to go back with him. And I'm thinking, no, I mean, this, the, no, she can tell me whatever she wants, but no, she, this woman was in trouble. She's in distress and I'm going to do everything I can to help her out. And I'm trying to talk her into going to the police and my girlfriend is too. And then she keeps talking about, no, 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 he's going to come get us. He's going to come get us. No, no, no. We're fine. We got away from him. It's all cool. And then sure enough, she says, nope, I better just go back with him. Can you pull over? So now I'm in a situation where I have to do what she asked me to do. I, anything else would be kidnapping. I think it's very unwise to actually go back to somebody that you were mad enough at to throw your purse at, but that's what I did. I pulled over and let her out and the tow truck screamed up behind my car and slammed on its brakes and she just sauntered off and got in the passenger seat and he stormed off past me yelling curses out the window. And then my friend said, see, told ya. Now, I don't have a whole lot to make of this story. It's just something that happened. And if it happened again, I think I would do exactly the same thing. Product review. Again with Foresty Forest. It, it sounds like I'm obsessed with this guy. I, I do enjoy his videos, but he, he's actually teaching me interesting things as he travels northern Canada in his Chevy Uplander. And he had this little cute backpacking boat that he just, it's a little tiny thing. It, it fit in your pocket. And he inflated it by the side of the river, and then he got in it and paddled across. And I thought, wow, how cool would it be to have a tiny boat in your van? I mean, imagine everything you could do with it. And then I realized that I'm not Foresty Forest. I am not a super fit 20-something who's maybe 5'6". I'm a advanced, middle-aged, kind of overweight guy who isn't in great physical shape, and there's no way in hell that boat's ever going to hold me. So... What I did was I bought a Sea Eagle 370. Now, Sea Eagle is a brand I've, I've known for a long time. They make really super high quality boats. And I got the 370 because it will fit both me and my wife comfortably. A 330, Sea Eagle 330 is probably better for van life if you are younger, more fit folks than we are. But for us, the 370 is good. This boat, it's not a boat. I mean, it is a boat, but it's a kayak. It's an inflatable kayak and it blows up very quickly with a foot pump. You can have this thing completely ready to go in about eight minutes. And then when you're done, it goes into a bag that's kind of half the size of a duffel bag. And it weighs a lot, it weighs about 40 pounds, and I can keep it on my roof if I'm traveling somewhere, but I really like the idea that I can travel with a boat and then open up a whole new world of possibilities of van life. Now the Sea Eagle, I recommend over other brands, because it is super, super heavy duty. Yeah, you can get cheaper kayaks that are inflatable, but they're made out of a much thinner material. You're probably thinking of like a pool float and stuff, and that's what a lot of the others are made of. 
The Sea Eagle ones are made of something that's closer to the kind of inflatable boats like Zodiacs that are permanently inflated. I mean, that are super tough. The thing isn't bulletproof, but I can tell you that when I ran over some branches with it, I didn't worry at all about it popping. It does come with a repair kit, but I really think you'll have to do something extraordinary to pop it. All of their boats are wonderful. I think the Sea Eagle 330 and the 370 are pretty darn cool for van life, and you should check them out. I'll have a link in the show notes. This is a really high-quality boat, and you can do quite a lot with it. And while it won't replace a hard-shell kayak, a hard-shell kayak isn't going to fit under your bed either. A place to visit! Oh, I've been to this place quite a few times because I I lived in New England. Um, This is L.L. Bean. Now, you've heard of L.L. Bean, and you've probably thought it is kind of a foofy line of clothes that is kind of at odds with what many people seek out of van life, and everything they have is expensive and all that. And and while that's true, um, I kind of like some of their stuff. But what I really like is visiting L.L. Bean. They have their original store in Freeport, Maine, and it's open 24 hours a day. Now, COVID may have changed that. Everything has changed with COVID. But traditionally, it's open 24 hours a day because it has been forever. Since they first opened in like 1912, they've been open 24 hours a day because back then when they were really outfitting trappers and hikers and people like that, they didn't know when those people would show up. So they were just open 24 hours a day. And they have virtually their entire catalog on display huge fishing sections. I mean, if you've been to a Cabela's or a Bass Pro Shop, which is kind of the same thing these days, it's like that only with the L.L. Bean feel. And because it's become such a destination, there's there's a little restaurant and it's in the middle of the Freeport tourist area. So you can get some lobster ice cream and you can go visit the BFI, which I'll let you figure out what that is. Anyway, for me, it's a bit of a pilgrimage. And if you're in southeastern Maine doing southeastern Maine kind of stuff, you might as well go and check out L.L. Bean, but I recommend you do it at like three in the morning. It's just kind of fun to be in this huge store that's kind of by yourself just wandering around at 3 a.m. I don't know why I like it. I'm a weird guy, but I think you might like it too. Resource recommendation. Kelly Blue Book. So if you're my age, you know what Kelly Blue Book is. It's It was a literally a blue book that had every vehicle in it from every year and how much it was worth, depending on how many miles it had and stuff like that. And years ago, they went online, but I'm not sure young folks actually are aware of it. So I'm going to bring it up here. If you go to kbb.com, you will be on the Kelly Blue Book site. And there's other sites that do this too. I'm just familiar with Kelly And Kelly is a great place to figure out how much vans are worth. You can go in there and type in any year and model of van and then add what options it has. Does it have a stereo? Does it have fancy wheels? Whatever. And it will tell you three values for the van. It will tell you the trade-in value, which is the lowest, the private party value, that is if you were going to buy it or sell it privately without involving a dealer, And then the dealer price, which is always the highest. It just gives you kind of a baseline for what to look at and to know, you know, if you're even in the ballpark of the right price for a van. Now, recently I've noticed they've stopped going back all that far. So if you're looking for an 85 Econoline, they may not be a great fit for you. But if you're looking for a van in the last 10 years, it's a really good resource. And also, of course, they've now added a shopping feature where... If you say you're looking for a 2015 NV200, you can fill out everything you want, and then it will link you to dealers that have them 
and with their prices, and you can see if this is a good price or a bad price. I don't care so much about that part because a lot of services do that, but it's good to know to say, hey, I have a choice between a 2015 ProMaster and a 2014 Econoline, and they're the same price. Which one should I pick? And I can tell you money-wise, the ProMaster is worth a lot more money, but I only know that because I've looked at Kelly Blue Book. So, kbb.com, give it a look just to get an idea of general values of vans. Q&A. How much should you worry about weight? No, I'm not talking about your personal weight. I'm talking about the weight in your van, how much stuff you have, and how it's distributed. Well, I can't give you a straight answer to that because it, it depends on many things, but first thing it depends on is what kind of a van you have. My NV200 has a 1,500-pound payload, which is pretty good, and it's a small van, so it would take a whole lot for me to actually overload this thing. I am nowhere near the 1,500-pound limit. Even with all my water filled and everything, I am fine. But if you have one of the bigger vans that is lower rated, like if you have the, a 1500, there's a Promaster 1500, there is a Transit 1500, there's a Sprinter 1500. If you have that, which is the lightweight version and a high roof, then it's actually pretty easy to overload the thing. And you don't want to do that. If you overload your vehicle, not only is it not legal, it's unsafe, especially if the weight is up top. So weight is definitely something you should think about. In general, you should know the empty weight of your vehicle and then what its carrying capacity is, and then just kind of generally think about that. And don't forget that your carrying capacity also includes you and a trailer you're towing, because ultimately the biggest thing about weight is braking. That's what you have to worry about, and all those things affect braking. On top of that, you also should worry about weight distribution. My van, the way I have built it, has terrible weight distribution. I have the batteries and all the water on the same side of the van, and it's the driver's side. So if I'm out there by myself, I've got almost all my weight on the driver's side of the van. That is not a good design, but that's what fit. So that's why I did it, and because I'm so underweight, I don't think it's a big deal. You want to balance stuff out. The most balanced place you can have something in your van is over the rear axle in the middle. If your van build is, is this type that has a garage or whatever, think about putting your batteries there or your water tank or something like that. Well, folks, thanks for listening to this episode 44, a palindrome, just like every episode is going to be every 11 episodes now. Music, as always, is by Simon Wag. If you'd like to get in touch, we are a Facebook group on Facebook. You can find Built to Go, a Facebook group there. Or you can find me at builttogo.com. And remember, until next time, that when Robert Frost was talking about a fork in the road, he was saying there was no difference in which one you chose. <laughs>